Hi, everybody. My name is Charlie, and I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic sex maniac. I haven't found it necessary to indulge in either one today. Yet. We were on the way out here the other day on the airplane, and Barbara said, Charlie, when we get out there in Santa Barbara this weekend, why don't you talk more about uh, spirituality and a little less about sex? And I said, Barbara, I don't know anything that's any more spiritual than sex. I spent the first 50 years of my life praying I could do it twice. I spent the last 19 praying I could do it once. I just don't know anything any more spiritual than that. I uh, want to thank the committee for asking us to be here. You've made us feel very welcome. you made us feel good. We've enjoyed ourselves the time we've been here so far. I thank the other speakers that have gone before us. We've heard some good AA and some good Al-Anon information, not only last night but throughout the day. And I thank them for being willing to come here and being willing to, to share with us. I uh, will go ahead and start like I should have in the first place and tell you my name is uh, Charlie Parman. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. And because I'm a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and by the grace of the power that I found in the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found necessary to take a drink for 10,545 days today, one day at a time, and for this I'm very grateful. Uh, people that uh, know me anymore, they kind of refer to me as an AA fundamentalist. And I'm not really sure what an AA fundamentalist is. But if it's to love the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, then I'm probably an AA fundamentalist. If it's to love the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous with all your heart, then I'm probably an AA fundamentalist. If it's to love the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, or the, the, uh, your God as you understand him, with all your heart and all your soul, then I'm probably an AA fundamentalist. Because you see, it's because of those three things that I'm here tonight. If it hadn't been for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I never would have found the Big Book. And if it hadn't been for the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, I certainly would not have found that God in my understanding today. I doubt very seriously if I would be able to be here tonight if it hadn't been for those three things. So as I talk tonight, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about my drinking. Most of the people in this room that are alcoholic, you already know about all you need to know about drinking anyhow. Those of you that have lived with we alcoholics, uh, you know about all you need to know about drinking too. So probably what I'd like to talk about most tonight is just a little bit about, uh, about my first drunk, a little bit about my last drunk, very little about what went on between, and then a little bit about what happened to me after I came to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I think, of course, that really is the most important part of the story that any of us have as to what happened to us after we got here. Now, I know like most young boys growing up, especially we alcoholics, I remember so clearly when I was going to school along about 12, 14, 15 years old, I was one of these kids that was always on the outside of the crowd looking in. Always wanted to be a part of and knew I could not be. I was always a little short fella. 
And back when I was 12, 14, 15 years old, I was a little bit on the chubby side. And it seemed as though I've always worn these glasses. Now, being a little short fat fella and wearing these glasses, and naturally you not only felt like you didn't fit in, but you really didn't fit in in too many places. And I know most of the guys that I used to run around with in school, they were all into some form of athletics. And I always wanted to be a part of that crowd too. But I found out that little short fat boys that wear glasses don't fit in in the athletic scene very well either. I remember so clearly one time going to the football coach and I asked him to let me try out for the football team. Now it seems as though he kind of smiled and he looked at me and he said, well son, I'm sorry, the little short fat boys that wear glasses don't make very good football players. Why don't you try out for the basketball team? I remember going to the basketball coach and I asked him to let me try out for the basketball team. And it seemed like he said the same thing, son, I'm sorry. The little short fat boys that wear glasses don't make very good basketball players. Why don't you try out for the track team? Always on the outside of the crowd looking in. Always wanted to be a part of. <clears throat> Always knew that I would not be able to. I also noticed these guys I ran around with when I was about 14 years old. They were doing things with girls that I wanted to do some of that too. And I would notice them in school, they'd be walking down the hallway and they'd have their arm around the girl and she would have her head on their shoulder and looking up at them with those great eyes that you girls have. And once in a while I would see them down around behind the stairwell and he would have her backed up in a corner and he'd have his arms around her and she'd have her arms around him and they would be kissing each other. Well, I wanted to do some of that too. But I found out that little short fat boys that wear glasses didn't score with the girls any better than they did with the athletic teams. And I remember so clearly one night at age 14, I'd gone to a high school dance and it was out in the country and it was in an old dairy barn. They had converted the upstairs part where they used to store the hay into the dance floor. The downstairs part where they had the stanchions where they used to milk the cows, they'd put tables where you could sit down and visit and have cokes and things like that. And I was at this dance and I was upstairs standing against the wall watching all these kids dance. And there was a little girl out there named Betty. And I'd been wanting to do something with Betty for a long time. But I'd always been afraid to say anything to her because I knew she would say no and wouldn't have anything to do with me. And other kids would hear her say that and I would be embarrassed. So I simply was afraid to try. But I remember that night standing against the wall and saying to myself, as soon as this music stops, I'm going to ask Betty to dance with me. And the music stopped and I began to walk toward Betty. And as I started toward her, my mind said, well, what are you going to do if she says no? All these other kids are here and they're going to laugh and you're going to be embarrassed. And my footsteps got a little bit slower. And then my mind said, well, what are you going to do if she says yes? And you're going to step on her toes and you're going to stumble and you're going to fall and you're going to fool yourself and you're going to be embarrassed. My footsteps got slower and slower. And before I could get to Betty, the music started. Some other guy grabbed her and they started dancing. And I went back against the wall. And I said to myself, as soon as this music stops, I'm going to ask Betty to dance with me. Now a tall, slender fellow that I knew came sidling up to me. And he said, Charlie, how would you like to go outside with me and have a drink of moonshine? Well, now, I didn't know what moonshine was. But I was afraid to tell him no because the other kids had heard him ask me. And I knew they would laugh and I'd be embarrassed if I didn't. So I said, okay, I guess that'll be all right. So we go downstairs and we go to his car. He opens up the trunk 
And he reaches in and he got out a quart jar of moonshine. Now those of you that have been moonshine drinkers in the past, you'll know what I'm talking about. When he took the lid off of it, the blue smoke curled up out of it. And he took a drink of it and he handed it to me. And I took a drink of that moonshine and as soon as I did, great things began to happen. The first thing that happened is, is that moonshine crossed my lips. My lips began to tingle a little bit. Struck my teeth and they kind of vibrated up and down. Hit my cheeks and they began to flutter in and out. And I could feel it beginning to pass through my sinus cavities into my forehead. And I began to get a feeling in my forehead which is indescribably wonderful. Now I haven't swallowed the damn stuff yet. I've just got it in my mouth. When I swallowed that moonshine, as it went down through my esophagus, of course, you know, it burnt like liquid fire. Almost choked to death, could hardly get my breath. But at the same time, I felt my chest begin to grow and expand and get bigger and bigger. It hit my stomach and just literally exploded like a bomb. Almost immediately, I could feel it racing through my arms, and they began to get longer and longer. Hits my hands and fingers, and they begin to tingle and vibrate. At the same time, it's racing through my arms, it's racing through my legs. They're getting longer and longer. I'm getting taller and taller. And it hit my feet and toes, and they got a hot, intense, burning, exciting, get up and go somewhere and do something feeling. And this guy looked at me, and he said, would you like to have another drink? Well, from the tremendous height I'd already grown to, I looked down on his head, and I said, yeah, I believe I'll have another one of those. And I took a second drink of that moonshine, and as we started back up the stairs to where the other kids were dancing, I knew a new freedom and a new happiness. I did not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. I comprehended the word serenity, and I knew peace. Fear of people and economic insecurity began to leave me. I intuitively knew how to handle situations which used to baffle me. I suddenly realized that alcohol was doing for me what I could not do for myself. I stood against the wall and the kids were dancing and I said to myself, as soon as this music stops, I'm going to ask Betty to dance with me. And the music stopped and I began to walk toward Betty and this time my mind didn't say, well, what are you going to do if she says no? Because I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that Betty was going to say yes. My mind didn't say, well, what are you going to do if she says yes? And you stumble and fall and make a fool of yourself because I knew that I'd be able to dance with Betty and there'd be no problem at all. So I walked right up to Betty and I said, Betty, how would you like to dance with me? And she looked at me rather fun, funny and she said, well, yeah, Charlie, I guess that's okay. And the music started and Betty and I began to dance. And sure enough, I didn't step on her toes and I didn't stumble and fall and I didn't make a fool of myself. And as the music ended, I said to Betty, how would you like to dance with me again? She said, well, yeah, Charlie, that would be all right. She said, you're a pretty good dancer. She said, I didn't know you could dance. And I said, I didn't either. But let's do it again. Now, the best of my knowledge, nobody else danced with Betty the rest of the evening. And the best of my recollection, she and I danced every tune. And as the dance began to draw to a close, I found myself saying something I've never been able to say before. I said, Betty, could I take you home from the dance? And she said, well, yeah, that would be okay. Yeah, that'd be fine. Now, I didn't have a car to take Betty home in. But I knew a guy that had one. And he happened to be a tall, slender fellow that had a quart of moonshine in the trunk of his car. So I went to him and I said, uh, I've asked Betty to take her home for the dance and she's agreed. How about she and I riding with you and your girlfriend? And he said, well, fine, yeah, come on, let's go. 
So we all go downstairs and we get the quart of moonshine out of the trunk and we put it in the back seat of the car in the floorboard and we begin tooling it down the road, he and, Betty, he and his girlfriend in the front seat, Betty and I in the back. And as we're riding down the road, I begin to think. Now, it's bad for alcoholics to begin to think, but I, I begin to think. I thought, you know, I've asked this girl to dance with me, and she didn't say no. She said, okay. I've danced with her, and I didn't make a fool of myself. I'm taking her home from the dance, and we're sitting in the back seat of this car together. I thought, I wonder what she would do if I would take my arm and put it around her shoulder and pull her over against me. Would she lay her head on my shoulder like those girls do with those guys in school? And we rode along a little while, and I thought about that some more, and I reached over, and I put my arm around Betty, and I pulled her over against me, and sure enough, she laid her head on my shoulder, and she looked up at me with those great eyes like you girls have, and I thought, Charlie, you really have been missing out on some of the better things of life. And as we rode along with her head on my shoulder, I began to think again. I thought, now, I've asked this girl to dance with me, and she didn't say no, and I didn't make a fool of myself, and I'm taking her home from the dance, and I've got her in the back seat of this car, and her head's on my shoulder. I thought, I wonder what she would do if I would lean over and kiss her. Now, I'd never kissed a girl before. I really didn't know how to do it, but I'd watched them do it in the movies. And I knew that in the movies, if you kissed one of them, what you needed to do was get their face in just the right position, and then you lean down and you put your lips against theirs. Well, as we rode along and I thought about it a while, I decided to try that. And I reached over with my right hand and I got Betty by the chin. And I got her face in what I thought was the right position. And I leaned down to put my lips against hers and closed my eyes as they do in the movies. And I don't really know what I expected. I thought she might slap my face. I thought she might get upset about it. But you know, a strange thing happened. As I put my lips against Betty's, I began to feel her little lips begin to move a little bit. And my little lips began to move a bit. And it began to be a feeling passing back and forth between us, which was one of those indescribably wonderful feelings. Now, as we rode along a little further, I began to think again. I thought I'd ask this girl to dance with me, and she said, okay, and I didn't make a fool of myself. I'm taking her home from the dance. I got her in the back seat of this car, and her head's on my shoulder, and I kissed her, and she didn't slap my face. And I thought, I wonder what she would do if I reached over there and got hold of one of those things. Well, now, I've never had hold of one of those things before. And I really didn't know how to go about doing it. But I assume if you're going to get a hold of one of them, you need to be kissing them at the same time. So once again, I reached over and I got Betty by the chin and got her face in the right position. Leaned down to put my lips against hers, only this time I didn't close my eyes because I wanted to see what my right hand was getting ready to do. And as I kissed Betty, I, sure enough, I reached over and, and I got hold of one of those things. Now let me tell you something. If you're a little short, fat boy that wears glasses and you're 14 years old and you've been thinking about getting a hold of one of those things for a long time and you get one of them in your hand for the first time, that really is a feeling that is indescribably wonderful. You know, it felt as if liquid fire had entered the palm of my hand. Sometimes when I think about it today, my old right hand just starts shaking up and down, you know. I'd ne never felt anything like it before and I'm not so damn sure I've ever felt anything like it since. That that was probably my first spiritual experience that night in the back seat of a 36 Chevrolet. Now, I'm not going to talk anymore about Betty. 
You know, people say, well, Charlie, why don't you finish that story? And I used to say, well, the reason I don't finish that story is I don't believe in talking about those things from behind the podium. But the truth is, the reason I don't finish that story is I don't really remember that story. Because, you see, something else happened to me that night, too. As I was there at the back seat of that 36 Chevrolet doing those things with Betty that was so, so important for this 14-year-old boy to be doing, so exciting. It seems as though something within every fiber of my being from time to time would say, why don't you stop what you're doing with Betty and reach over there and get a drink out of that jar of moonshine? And I'd stop what I was doing with Betty and I'd take the lid off that jar of moonshine. I'd take another drink of it, put the lid on, set it down, and then go back to what I was doing with Betty. And from time to time, I would have to stop what I was doing with Betty, have a drink of moonshine, and somewhere, somehow, that night, I simply passed out of the picture. You see, I don't really remember the rest of that story. I don't remember what happened with Betty the rest of that night. And I think I evidenced that night the first thing that you have to have in order to be a practicing alcoholic, the physical allergy to alcohol. I took that first drink and it triggered that thing within me. I was unable to stop drinking and the first time I ever drank, I drank until I passed completely out of the picture. Now I woke up the next morning at home in my bed, didn't know how I got there, didn't know how I got home, terribly sick and terribly hungover, and my mind began to think about the night before. But as my mind began to think about the night before, it didn't think about the fact that I had blacked out and didn't know how I got home. It didn't think about the fact that I didn't know how I got in bed. It didn't think about the terrible hangover. It thought about one thing and one thing only, that great sense of ease and comfort, that great exciting in-control feeling, that I got when I took that first drink of moonshine the night before. I think the next morning I evidenced the second thing you have to have to be a practicing alcoholic. The complete inability to see the truth about alcohol. I could not see what alcohol had done to me the night before. I could only see what alcohol had done for me the night before. You know, if we alcoholics, if they way back in the very beginning, if we'd been able to see the truth about alcohol and see what it does to us, we probably would have been able to do something about our drinking, but we can't do that. Dr. Silkworth tells us in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, we really cannot differentiate the truth from the false. To us, what we're doing is absolutely normal. Now, other people around me could immediately differentiate the truth from the false about my drinking. Other people around me could immediately see the truth about it. My mother said to me when I was 15 years old, she said, son, I need to talk to you about your drinking. She said, don't you know that you have an uncle in the state of California who's in the state insane asylum, and the reason he's there is because he's become a wet brain from drinking alcohol. And she said, I saw him when he first started drinking. And she said, what I need to say to you is you drink just exactly like he did when he first started drinking. And she said, if you continue to drink as you're drinking now, then sooner or later you're going to end up just as your uncle somewhere in a state insane asylum as a wet brain. Now my mother could differentiate the truth and the false about my drinking immediately. But I said to my mother, I said, Mother, you don't understand. I said, I'm not going to be like my uncle. If alcohol ever gets to be a serious problem in my life, I'll stop drinking. You'll never have to worry about that. The complete inability to see the truth about my alcoholism. 
Now then, I'm 16 years old. And my dad said to me one day, he said, son, I need to talk to you about your drinking. He said, every member of the Parmley family that's ever tried to drink has always ended up in serious trouble with it. And he said, the only ones of us that have ever been able to escape from it are those that were able to stop drinking immediately when we were young. And he said, every one of us that's ever tried to continue drinking, we've destroyed our lives. And he said, what I need to say to you is that if you continue to drink the way you do, you're going to destroy your life also. My dad could differentiate the truth and the false about my drinking from the very beginning. But I said to my dad, you don't understand me. I said, I'm only half parmly. And I'll never be like you other parmleys. If alcohol ever gets to be a serious problem in my life, I'll stop drinking. You'll never have to worry about that. The complete inability to differentiate the truth from the false. Now that I'm 17 years old. And I wake up one day in an army hospital in Bremerhaven, Germany. And there's a doctor standing at the side of my bed when I wake up. And he said, son, I need to talk to you about your drinking. He said, I don't know whether you know it or not, but you've already died twice in the last three days. And he said, if you continue to drink alcohol the way you're doing, you'll never live to be age 30 years old. And I said, doctor, you don't understand. If alcohol ever gets to be a serious problem in my life, I'll stop drinking. You'll never have to worry about that. The complete inability to see the truth about alcohol. I'm 21 years old. And a beautiful young lady I had married said to me one day, she said, Charlie, I love you deeply. She said, you're a fine, fine husband, and I think you're going to be a good father. But she said, I need to talk to you about your drinking. She said, I don't know where you're going. I don't know what you're doing, but you're going out and you're laying out at night. You're coming in about two-thirds drunk. And she said, what I need to do is tell you that if you continue to drink the way you drink, that sooner or later I'm going to have to divorce you. She said, I can't live under these conditions. And I said, oh, sweetheart, you'll never have to worry about that. If alcohol ever begins to interfere with our marriage, I'll stop drinking. You'll never have to worry about it. I'm age 31 or 32 years old. And my boss called me in one day and he said, Charlie, you're one of the finest employees we've got. And he said, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but you're slated to take my job when I retire a couple years from now. But he said, I need to talk to you about your drinking. He said, you're going out at night and I don't know where you're going, don't know what you're doing, really don't care. But he said, you're coming in in the mornings and you're smelling like booze. You're hungover and you're about half drunk part of the time. And he said, what I need to tell you is if you continue to drink the way you're drinking, sooner or later we're going to have to get rid of you. And I said, oh, boss, don't you worry about that. If alcohol ever interferes with my job, I'll stop drinking. You will never have to worry about that. The complete inability to differentiate the truth about alcohol. I think that's the one major thing that every alcoholic has in order to be a good, solid, practicing alcoholic. Because if we could see what alcohol really does to us, if we could really see the jailhouses, the divorce courts, the hospitals, and the car wrecks, then surely, surely we would have the ability to stop drinking. But you see, we can't see that. We have a thing called an obsession of the mind that always leads us to thinking it wasn't that bad. This time it's going to be different. This time we'll just have one drink and everything's going to be okay. And continually we go back to it over and over and over and over and over again. 24 years after I took that first drink of moonshine, 
I came to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, those of you that heard Barbara speak today, you know that after that first wife had divorced me and after I'd lost that great job and et cetera, et cetera, I eventually ended up meeting Barbara. And Barbara and I got married. We fell in love almost immediately. And she had three beautiful children I loved. And then we had a little daughter of our own within a year after we got married. But Barbara had begun to talk to me about my drinking too. She began to say such things as, Charlie, you're drinking too much and you're creating problems here at home and you're laying out at night and I don't know where you're going, I don't know what you're doing. And she began to say such things if you continue to drink the way you do, that sooner or later we'll have to do something about our marriage. And sure enough, after a few years of drinking, Barbara got enough of it. And she went to an attorney and she filed for divorce. The attorney came out and he presented the papers. He sent somebody out, they presented the papers to me. And Barbara did like all of them do. The attorney told her, said before they deliver the papers on him, go to the bank and get all the money out of it because otherwise he'll get it. And I ended up with the divorce papers in hand. Barbara had all the money, no place to go, nothing else to do. So I did what any good red-blooded alcoholic does. I went to Barbara and I said, Barbara, you really don't understand what you're doing. You know, if you get rid of me, he's going to take care of you and these kids and et cetera. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you'll drop the divorce proceedings and if you'll put the money back in the bank, then I'll stop drinking. And basically, that's all Barbara wanted to hear. And I really did intend to stop drinking. Now, you people who are non-alcoholic, you probably could never understand this, but when we say that we're going to quit drinking, that is absolutely what we intend to do. And we take our willpower, which is the greatest tool we have, and we say, sick em, Will, we're through with that drinker. <laughs> now, people try to tell we alcoholics that we are weak-willed people. Don't you believe that? We're not weak-willed people. We are strong-willed people. Weak-willed people do not become alcoholic. The third time they vomit, they quit drinking. <laughs> alcoholic knows there's got to be a way to drink without puking. We damn near kill ourselves trying to find that. And I exerted my willpower to it, and I said, I'm going to quit drinking. Now, as time went by, everybody was happy about my not drinking. Barbara was happy about my not drinking. The kids were happy about my not drinking. The neighbors were happy about my not drinking. But I wasn't happy about my not drinking. Because you see, I had removed from me the only thing that had ever made me feel good. And I wanted to feel better, and the only way I knew to feel better would be to take a drink of whiskey which I did, and of course when I did, I triggered the allergy and I couldn't stop drinking. Barbara had learned what works. After a short period of my drinking this time, she filed for divorce again. Went to the bank, got all the money out of the bank, they delivered the papers on me, and I did the only thing any good self-respecting alcoholic can do. I sneaked in the house, I took a shower, I cleaned up, I put some sweet spellum on, and I began to talk to Barbara about dropping the divorce. Now, I don't know what it is that I've got, but apparently she was willing to go to any lengths to get it because she put the money back in the bank and she dropped the divorce, and sure enough, I quit drinking. And everybody was happy about that except me. After a period of time, wanting to feel better, knowing only one way to feel better, I took a drink, I triggered the allergy, and sure enough, Barbara filed for divorce again. But this time, when she filed for divorce the third time, she had also heard about Al-Anon and AA, and she had talked to some people in Al-Anon, and she had agreed to go to an Al-Anon meeting. Now, they had delivered the papers on me. They had put me out of the house. 
Barbara went to an Al-Anon meeting in a, in a town called Siloam Springs, Arkansas. And the day after she went to that Al-Anon meeting, she called me. And she said, Charlie, I've been to a meeting of Al-Anon. And she said, I've learned that you're not a bad person, you're a sick person. I've learned about what alcoholism is. And she said, I believe if you would like to come home, that we could probably work this thing out. Now, I've always given Al-Anon credit for that. But also, this time, just before I took the first drink on this third divorce, I went to the bank and I got all the money out of it. And I think that had something to do with it, too. I moved back into the house and Barbara continued to go to Al-Anon meetings and, and I continued to drink. But this time it was different. This time, instead of her trying to stop me from drinking, this time, rather than raise hell with me every time she turned around about my drinking, she just more or less ignored my drinking. And as the time went by and she went to Al-Anon and the drinking got worse and worse, I began to have to start looking at me. Because you see, always before, when I really needed to get on a good drunk, I could pick a fight with Barbara, raise all kind of hell with her, then go out and get drunk and say, anybody that has to live with a woman like that deserves a good drunk. But now then she wouldn't fight with me any longer. So I began to have to look at me and begin to try to determine, well, if she isn't the problem, then what is it? One day she said to me, she said, Charlie, I've got a sponsor in Al-Anon named Wanda, and her husband is AA, and he's a fellow named Floyd. She said, I think you know him. She said, would you be willing to talk to Floyd if he came over here to the house about AA? Now, I didn't particularly want to talk to Floyd. Didn't particularly want to talk about AA. Knew I was not an alcoholic. But Barbara had been treating me a little better, and things were getting along fairly good at home. So to keep peace in the family, I agreed to do that. Barbara, or Floyd and Wanda came to our house one afternoon. Wanda and Barbara got in the car and they left. <laughs> Floyd sat down in my kitchen and he began to do something for me that nobody else had ever been able to do. I assumed he was going to talk to me about my drinking. Everybody else had. Barbara had, the banker had, the sheriff had, the neighbors had, everybody else had. But Floyd didn't want to talk about my drinking. He said, Charlie, let me tell you about my drinking, referring to his own. And he began to talk about the many, many times that he was going to stop by the bar on the way home from work. And he was going to have just one or two drinks, and he would go home and have dinner with his family. And he said, I'd take a couple of drinks. And he said, then something would happen to me, and I would be unable to stop drinking. And rather than go home and have dinner with my family, I would have to stay there and drink and drink and drink. And he said, maybe I wouldn't get home till midnight that night or the next night or the next week. And I said, my God, Floyd, that's what's been happening to me. He said, well, they told me in AA that this is a physical allergy to alcohol. And he said, they told me when we put any alcohol, whatever, into our system, it creates an actual physical craving that demands more of the same. And he said that physical craving is so strong, we simply could not start drinking after we once started. And he continued to talk about the many, many times that he had sworn off drinking. And he said, now, Charlie, I've got a tremendous amount of willpower. I've always been able to do anything I wanted to do based on willpower. 
And he said, I would swear off drinking and swear I'd never take another drink as long as I live. And he said, an hour later, or a day later, or a week later, I would find myself in the bar wondering, how in the hell did I get here this time? I said, Floyd, that's what's been happening to me. He said, these same people at AA told me that this is an obsession of the mind. And that people who are alcoholic cannot see the truth about alcohol. And he said, it doesn't make any difference how badly we want to stop drinking. It doesn't make any difference how hard we apply our willpower. From time to time, our mind will begin to think about the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking two drinks. It'll begin to think about that great, exciting, in-control feeling that we get whenever we drink. And he said, as we begin to think about that, our mind begins to push out the ideas about the jailhouses, the divorce courts, the car wrecks. And he said, after a while, we really believe it's okay to drink. And we'll take a drink knowing it's going to be okay, and then the drink will trigger the allergy, and then we can't stop and we end up drunk. Every time he said, Charlie, people like us, we can no longer safely drink because of the physical allergy, and we can't keep from drinking because of the mind. And he said, if you can't safely drink and you can't keep from drinking, then you're absolutely powerless over alcohol. He said, would you be willing to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with me? And I said, yeah, I believe I will. He gave me just enough that night to get me interested in this thing called alcoholism. Just enough to get me interested in this thing called AA. And Floyd picked me up and he took me at a meeting in this same place that Barbara had been going, this place in Siloam Springs, Arkansas. And I got a group there that as I started in the door, they had a little plaque by the side of the door that said, Borderline Group. I didn't say AA, I just said Borderline Group. And as I started through the door and I saw that sign, and I said, well, this must be a special place for people like me. I'm really not alcoholic, but I might be a borderline case. We don't have much ego when we get here, do we? I was in AA about two years before I figured out the reason they called it the borderline group is because it's on the borderline between Oklahoma and Arkansas is why they called it the borderline group. But I knew it was a special group for people just like me. And I walked in the door of Alcoholics Anonymous at that meeting. And I don't really know what I expected to see there when I went in. I thought it would be a bunch of older men, all beat up and broken down, Probably the clothing not too good. I assume they would all need a shave too. And they would be sitting around the table, bemoaning the fact that they would never be able to take another drink of alcohol as long as they lived. I knew if there was any women there that they would be in worse shape than the men were. And I walked in that room, and there was a room full of about 20 people in there, and they absolutely amazed me. The men were all dressed up, clean clothes, those that shaved were clean-shaven. Those that had beards were trimmed. The women looked good. They were dressed up good. They had on their makeup. They had their hairdos. And they all looked great. But what really, really impressed me, in that room full of about 20 people, every one of them came to me. And every one of them stuck their hand out and shook my hand and said, We're glad to have you here. That had been a long time since anybody had been glad to have me anywhere. And almost immediately I felt a feeling between those people and myself that this might be the place that I belong. 
And I remember one of them, he said, Charlie, we're sure glad to have you here. He said, have you been having a little trouble with alcohol? And I said, well, yeah, I have. And I guess the reason I'm here is to find out what to do about it. And they proceeded to tell me. One of them said, we believe that you need to go to four, five, six meetings a week. They said, for a new person, it's almost imperative you do that and you stay with people of your kind. Said it's not a bad idea for older members, but it's very, very important for new members to do that. Another one of them reached over and he got the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he handed it to me and he said, Charlie, this is a story of how the first 100 men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous recovered from alcoholism. And he said, if you'll take this book and read it and study it and do what it says, you'll not have to drink anymore if you don't want to. There was an older fellow there. You see him at every AA meeting. I call him the bald-headed poot. He looked at me and he smiled and he said, Son, I remember in those days I'm still back in my 30s, a lot younger than I am now. He said, Son, if you really want to stay sober, sooner or later you're going to have to make a decision to turn your will and your life over to care of God and your understanding or you'll never be able to stay sober without it. And I looked at these beautiful people and I said to them, you know, I like you people. You've made me feel welcome and nobody has in a long time. You make a reasonably good cup of coffee. I feel comfortable here among you. But what I need to tell you is that those things you're telling me to do, I can't do them. I said, I've got a little farm up here. And on that farm, I raised 45,000 broiler chickens. And another little farm over here, I've got a 100-head cow operation. And on this farm over here, I've got a 30-hog sow operation. And on this place over here, I've got a 500-hog feeder operation. And I said, I've got a red-headed wife and four kids and two bird dogs. And if you're going to take care of all that kind of stuff, you've got to stay home at night and get your rest. There's no way I can go to four or five or six AA meetings a week. I opened the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. One of them had said, open it up to chapter 5, how it works. I opened it up to chapter 5 and I read how it works. And I damn near vomited. <laughs> Step 1 said, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. I said, I'm not powerless over anything. Step two said, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I said, man, don't tell me I'm crazy. Oh, yeah, I do stupid things when I'm drinking. But when I'm sober, I'm much like normal people. Step three said, made a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand it. Now, if you're not powerless and you're not nuts, there's no way you can make the decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand it. And I said, I can't do those things. And I closed your book. I looked at the old bald-headed poot. I said, don't tell me about God. I said, I already know about God. I said, I learned about God in the good old Southern Baptist Church. Now, I'm sure in that good old Southern Baptist Church, from time to time, they must have talked about a kind and a loving God. But if they did, that message never got to the pew I sat in. Because all I could remember hearing about God in church was hellfire and brimstone going to hell for lying and cheating and stealing and drinking whiskey and committing adultery. By the time I got to AA, I'd been doing that for about 26 years. And I said, don't tell me about God, that I want nothing to do with that period. But I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to come to your meetings every Friday night, 
and I'm going to work this program the way I want to, and I'm going to stay sober, and if you don't believe me, you watch me, I'm getting ready to do that. Now this is why I love the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous so great today. Any other fellowship in the world would have taken an arrogant little SOB like me, picked him up by the seat of the britches, and throw him out the door. All they did was rear back and smile and said, keep coming back. Yeah. I kept coming back, and I went every Friday night. Didn't miss a meeting. And as time went by, I began to feel worse and worse and worse and worse. I couldn't get along with Barbara. I couldn't get along with the kids. Couldn't get along with the bird dogs. Couldn't get along with anybody or anything. And as time went by, I got sicker and sicker and sicker. And finally, after about 90 days, I'd been hearing these people talk about having a slip. And I decided it's time for me to have one. And I took a drink of whiskey and I triggered the allergy. And I couldn't stop drinking. Now, in those days when I drank, I would have to drink until I just got so sick I couldn't drink anymore. And when I would get so sick I couldn't drink anymore, I would go to the liquor store and get my daily ration of whiskey or vodka. By this time, it had gone to vodka. And I'd get some beer. And I would go home and I would slowly, slowly taper off of the vodka and get on to the beer. That would take about 10 days to do that. And then I would slowly, slowly taper off of the beer, which took about another 10 days to do that. And I came off of that drunk and I did the only thing I've ever done right. I went right back to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked in the door of the meeting in Siloam Springs at the Borderline Group. And as I walked in there on Friday night there, they all stood with their hands sticking out. And they said, hello, Charlie, how are you? They said, man, we're glad to see you back. Have you been having a little trouble with alcohol? And I said, well, yeah, I have. And I guess the reason I'm here is to find out what to do about it. And they proceeded to tell me. One of them said, we believe you need to go to four or five or six A meetings a week. Another one said, take this book and do what it says and you'll be okay. And the old bald-headed pootie smiled again. And he said, son, sooner or later, if you want to stay sober, you're going to have to do something about turning your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him, or you'll never stay sober without it. And I looked at these beautiful people and I said, you don't understand me. I absolutely cannot do those things. There's no way can I go to four or five or six A meetings a week. There's no way I can work the steps in this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, don't even talk to me about God. I don't want to hear about him at all, period. I know who he is. I know what he is. And I know he'll have nothing to do with a guy like me. I said, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to your meetings every Friday night. And I'm going to work this program the way I want to. And I'm going to stay sober. And if you don't believe me, you watch me. I'm getting ready to do it. And they all reared back and smiled and said, keep coming back. And I did. I went every Friday night. Didn't miss a Friday night period. As time went by, I got sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. I went by the 90 days. I had enough willpower to do the 90 days this time. And about the end of six months, I said, this, if this is all life's about, then it's not worth living. And I took a drink, and I triggered the allergy, and I couldn't stop drinking. Now, some four, five, six, eight, ten weeks later, I got so sick I couldn't drink anymore. I went to the liquor store, and I got my beer to go. It took me about ten days to get off the vodka, and another ten to get off the beer. And I did the only thing I've ever done right. I went right back to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked in the door on a Friday night, and there they all stood. And they had their hands sticking out. And they were all smiling. They said, hello, Charlie, how are you? They said, man, we're glad to see you back. Have you been having a little trouble with alcohol? 
And I said, well, yeah, I have. And I guess I'm here to find out what to do about it. And they proceeded to tell me. And one of them said, by God, you need to go to four or five or six A meetings a week. Another one said, take this damn book and do what it says and you'll be okay. The old bald-headed pootie said, boy, I'm getting tired of telling you this. But he said, if you really want to stay sober, sooner or later, you're going to have to do something about God. And again, I said to these wonderful people, I can't do those things. And as I look back now, I, I know today why I couldn't do those things. You see, I had never been defeated. You, know, you, you can't be powerless over alcohol if you're able to stop drinking on your own. And the fact that I could stop drinking on my own was enough to convince me that I'm different than these other people because they talked about the fact they couldn't stop drinking on their own. They had to go to hospitals. They had to go to places to get help. No, I did it on my own. Now, if you haven't been defeated, then there's no way that you can do anything about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I said to these great people, I'm going to work this thing the way I want to. I'm going to come to meetings every Friday night, and I'm going to stay sober. And if you don't believe me, you watch me. I'm getting ready to do it. And they all reared back and smiled and said, keep coming back. And I did. I went by the 90 days. I went by the six months. I'm beginning now to approach nine months of sobriety in AA. And life has become an absolute living hell. Because you see, the only thing that had ever worked for me, the only thing that would ever do for me what I couldn't do for myself was that drink of alcohol. And it's the only thing that ever made me fit. It's the only thing that ever made me feel good. It's the only thing that ever made me enough. And I had removed it from my life, and I had replaced it with nothing else. And about nine months period, I said to myself, life's not worth living this way. You're either going to have to do the program the way they're telling you to do it, or you're going to have to get drunk, or you're going to have to blow your brains out. And I seriously considered all three. And I thought, there's no way I can work this program the way they're telling me to do it. And I thought about blowing my brains out, and, and I said, hell, I don't want to die. Didn't want to then, don't want to today. Well, if I couldn't work the program and I couldn't blow my brains out, there's only one thing left to do. And I took a drink of it, and I triggered the allergy, and I couldn't stop drinking. And this started a month, a, a drunk that would last for quite some time. As time went by, the drinking became worse and worse and worse. I finally reached the point where I couldn't drink anymore, got so sick I couldn't drink anymore. I went to the liquor store, I got my vodka, and I got my beer. And I tried drinking that beer, and it was just like drinking water. It would do nothing for me. And about all I could do was drink that vodka and pass out. And Barbara and the kids had moved me into the utility room out there by myself. I'd wake up, and I'd say, I'm not going to take a drink today. But I'd be so sick that I couldn't get up out of the cot that I was sleeping on, and I'd have to have a drink of vodka. And I'd take that drink of vodka, and that triggered that allergy, and I couldn't stop, and I'd end up another day drunk. And I'd wake up after a while, and I'd say, I'm, I'm not going to take another drink, and, and I'd have to have a drink. And I got to work, couldn't eat. I got to work, couldn't sleep. And I got to work, couldn't drink coffee, and couldn't smoke cigarettes. I couldn't do anything but drink vodka and pass out and wake up sick and shaking and trembling and swearing I'm not going to have a drink, but having to have a drink and pass out. And one day Barbara stuck her head in the door, and she said, Honey, you're sick, aren't you? I said, Yes, I am. She said, do you have anything left to drink? And I said, no, I'm completely out. She said, I'll be back in a little while. And she came back in an hour or so, and, and uh, she had a brown paper sack, and 
in that brown paper sack it was completely full of pint bottles of, of, of vodka uh, strawberry vodka and lemon vodka and God only knows what else and it was completely full of these and she said here you love this more than you love anything else and she gave me that sack of vodka and she walked out now for years I thought she did that out of the goodness of her heart but today I know she had learned in al to let him drink all he wants to drink and the more he drinks, the better, the sooner he'll reach bottom or die, one of the two. And in her case, her problem would be solved. Whether I quit drinking or whether I died didn't make that much difference. Barbara helped me reach bottom. I sat there and I drank that vodka and I thought, man, I've got enough here now to do me for a week or two. And just a day or two later, I'm out of vodka again. And I woke up one morning knowing full well that I was dying from alcoholism. Now, I didn't want to die drunk. Never have wanted to die, especially didn't want to die drunk. And I really didn't know what to do about it, but I knew that I could no longer do it by myself. And I said to Barbara, I said, Barbara, I've got to have help. I can't quit drinking. And that's all she was waiting on. She got to the phone, she called this fellow named Floyd, another fellow named Bus. And they came to the house to see about me, and, and they looked in the utility room, and I'll never forget them. Bus was a real tall guy, rough, tough old telephone line repair man. And he looked at Floyd, he looked at me, and he looked at Floyd, and he said, Man, we can't sober him up. Now, in those days, you couldn't get in the hospital hardly for alcoholism. We sobered each other up in each other's homes. And he said, We can't sober him up. He's going to die on us just sure as anything. We're going to have to get him somewhere and get him some help. And Floyd said, Well, I know a doctor that I think I can get him in the hospital. And he looked at me and he said, come on, Charlie, let's get you cleaned up and let's get you to the hospital, let's get you some help. And I said, no, boys, I don't believe I'm that bad. I believe I can do this by myself. And thank God for the fellowship. Bus looked at Floyd and he said, let's go home. So there's nothing we can do to help him. So until he's ready, until he's completely defeated, we're just wasting our time. And Floyd looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, Charlie, I'm going home. But he said, when you need me, call me and I'll be back. And they left and I, I, I was there another two or three hours and trying to get well and couldn't get well. And, and I knew I couldn't do it my way. And somehow I got to the phone and I called Floyd. And I said, come and get me, Floyd, I'm ready. And he came to our house and I'm, I'm sitting on the front porch. And I've got a... Uh, a half a can of beer sitting on the front porch trying to drink enough beer to get well so I can go to the hospital. And Floyd got out of his pickup and he said, come on, bring your beer and you can drink it on the way. And I said, no, Floyd, that's, uh, I don't want any more beer. I said, I've had all I can stand. I just absolutely can't drink anymore. And we left my house and, and I left a half a can of beer sitting on the front porch. Now, I drank for 26 years. I don't ever remember walking away from a drink of anything that had alcohol in it till that day. He took me to the hospital and of course there they gave me the proper medication to ward off the DTs, the convulsions, and I don't know what happened there. And I know there was a lot of screaming and hell raising going on. Uh, two or three days later I woke up and I had bruises all over my arms and legs where apparently I'd been tied down. I noticed the nurses, as they came by, they would look in the room. They wouldn't come in. They would just look in. I didn't see any pink elephants, but I, but I saw a white horse. Had no white horse. He would come in that room and visit with me. 
and he would sit down in the chair over in the corner and cross his legs. And if he had his glasses on, he would talk to me. But if he took his glasses off, forget it, he wouldn't say a word without his glasses on. I remember that just as clear as anything. I woke up in that hospital in a place I'd never been before. Not in my body, but in my mind. I woke up in a place of absolute, complete defeat. And I didn't know what to do about it. I knew if I left that hospital, I was going to drink. And I knew if I drank, I was going to die from alcoholism. And I really didn't know what to do about it. It blows my mind today to think that I'd been in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for a year and a half, and when I finally reached bottom, I didn't know what to do. But finally, finally, a thought came to mind. One of the other older members of AA had said, if you ever in complete desperation don't know which way to turn, he said, try a little prayer and see what happens. And I remember lying in that bed looking straight up at the ceiling, and I said, do you dare pray? And I said, no, you don't pray. Only weak people pray. I said, strong people like you, Charlie, that stand on their own two feet, they don't pray to nothing. And my mind said, well, well what are you going to do if you don't? And my mind said, what good would it do? God's not going to have anything to do with you because of what you've been in the past. And if he does, it won't be anything good. And my mind said, but what are you going to do if you don't? And finally my mind said, what would it hurt to try? There's not a soul in this room except you. And if you prayed and it didn't work, nobody else would know you'd even done it. And I looked straight up at that ceiling and I uttered a prayer, which is probably about as false as any prayer can be. I said, God, if there is a kind and a loving God, can you remove from me the obsession to drink alcohol? Now, I really don't know what happened. I wasn't like Bill Wilson. I, did, I didn't feel as if the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. I didn't see any great blinding flashes of light. But I knew the instant I said that prayer that I never had to drink again if I didn't want to. I didn't know for sure how I was not going to do it, but I knew I wouldn't have to anymore if I didn't want to. And I left that hospital and I did the only thing I've ever done right. I went right back to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I walked in the door at Siloam Springs Borderline Group on Friday night and there they all stood with their hands sticking out. And they said, hello, Charlie, how are you? They said, man, we're glad to see you back. You've been having a little trouble with alcohol? I said, yes, I have. But I didn't ask them what to do about it. And they didn't tell me what to do about it. I started going to four, five, or six AA meetings a week. I opened the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And this time I didn't start in chapter five. I started way back in the front, way back in the doctor's opinion. I began to ask this God that I did not understand and still don't understand him today. I began to ask him every morning, God, please, one more day of sobriety. Don't let me get into anything today that you and I can't keep me out of. Please help me not drink today. I began to thank him when I went to bed at night for another day of sobriety. And as time went by, things began to change. This time, instead of it getting worse and worse and worse, things began to get better. I began to have a little better relationship with Barbara. I began to have a little better relationship with my children. I began to have a little better relationship with the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. One day I came to the realization that God is doing for me what I can't do for myself. 
that God is doing those things for me that alcohol used to do for me. And if God's doing those things for me that alcohol used to do for me, then I don't need alcohol to have alcohol do those things for me. And I was absolutely amazed when I realized that. And as years went by and trying to work the program, trying to read and study the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, I began to finally realize what had happened to me. And I'd always heard all my life that all human beings are born to live in three dimensions of life. The big book talks about those three dimensions of life. It says we're meant to live with the Spirit. You know, if God dwells in each of us, and I'm convinced that he does because my book says so, then that means I'm going to have to live with God, whether I like it or not, is beside the point. The only question is, do I live with God in harmony or disharmony? Nobody in the world ever got in more disharmony with God than I did and other alcoholics have. The book talks about the mental dimension. We all have a mind. Sometimes we act like we don't, but we do. And we're going to have to live with our mind whether we like it or not is beside the point. And again, the only question is, do we live in our mind in harmony or disharmony? I don't know of any group of people in the world that ever got in more disharmony in their own minds with themselves than we alcoholics have. There is a thing called the physical dimension. Now, for a long time, I thought that was my body. But I realize today the physical dimension is the world and everything in it. And we alcoholics don't have any place to live except here on earth. Whether we like it or not is beside the point. That's the only place we've got to live. And the only question is, do we live here in harmony or disharmony? I don't know of any group of people in the world that ever got in more disharmony with the world and everything in it than we alcoholics have. The book says we were spiritually, mentally, and physically ill. Now, as I look at our program, I, one day I saw some words in there that said, it's a design for living that really works. And I got to looking at the program, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I began to look at the design of the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I began to realize that they are designed to put us back together as God intended for us to be in the first place. Because you see, because of my powerlessness, I was able to see where I was insane. And because of the powerlessness and because of the insanity, I was able to make a decision about this God thing. And through steps one, two, and three, I got the right relationship with God. You know, there I decided that God's going to be the director. Always before I was the director. I decided that God's going to be the father and I'm going to be the child. He's going to be the employer and I'm going to be the employee. Always before when it came to God, I always told God what I wanted him to do. God do this for me. God do that for me. God get me out of this mess. God, if you'll do that, I'll do this and etc. Never, never had I thought to try to find out what God wanted me to be. And through step one, two, and three, I developed a proper relationship with this God as I understand him. That removed just enough self-will to let me begin to look into my mind. And through steps four and five, I begin to see those things within me that had become the outgrowth of a life run on self-will. I began to see where I had become a very selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate human being. I began to be able to see where, based on those character defects, that I would do things to hurt people, they would retaliate against me, and then I would resent them for doing so. I began to see that if I ever wanted any peace of mind, 
that we're going to have to do something about my character defects. Not anybody else's, but mine. And through 4 and 5, I was able to see that. Through 6 and 7, I began to work on those character defects. I began to ask God to remove this selfishness from me. I began to ask him to take away this dishonesty, take away this self-seeking, frightened individual, take away this inconsideration. But I also realized one day that God can't take it away unless I'm willing to become the opposite. And in order for God to take away my selfishness, I had to start practicing unselfishness. In order for him to take away my dishonesty, I had to start practicing honesty. In order for him to take away my fear, I had to start practicing courage to take away inconsideration. I had to start thinking about other people and their needs and their wants. And slowly, slowly, over a period of time, as God removed and I practiced the opposite, I began to find that I was becoming a different human being. You know, I think we alcoholics are the luckiest people in the world. Most people out there today are sick. Most of them are going to the grave sick, not even knowing they're sick. We not only know we're sick, we know what's wrong with us. We found out through steps 4, 5, 6, and 7 what our problems really are. And through 4, 5, 6, and 7, with God's help, we change those things. You know, I, I think I understand today what the book says when it says we were reborn, not in our bodies, but in our minds. I am not what I used to be. I'm not perfect. I'm not completely unselfish. I'm not completely honest. I'm not completely filled with courage. I'm not completely considerate of others. But I'll guarantee you, I am not what I used to be. I have become a different human being. I think the reason we're so lucky is that we have the opportunity to live two lifetimes in one lifetime. The lifetime of what we used to be and the lifetime of something entirely different. And that's what comes about through 4, 5, 6, and 7. I got right with me in my head. Also, I found that in order for me to really feel good, I was going to have to do something about those people I'd hurt in the past. Didn't want to. God knows nobody wants to apologize for the past. Nobody wants to take from today's living and give back for things in the past. The only question is, can we afford not to do that? And I found that the guilt and the remorse just literally ate me up. Thank God for steps eight and nine. Through steps eight and nine, I got right in the physical dimension. I got right with the world and the people in it. Now, if you're right with God, you're right with yourself, and you're right with your fellow man, you're going to feel pretty good towards yourself. You know, I don't think it's by accident that the very next thing in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, is called the promises. The promises come as the result of the work that we've done through these first nine steps. And as I read those promises, as I, as I read about knowing a new freedom and a new happiness, as I read about comprehending the word serenity and knowing peace, as I read about fear of people and economic insecurity would leave me, one day as I read them, I said, hey, this is what alcohol used to give to me. When alcohol was my friend, when alcohol did all the good things for me that I needed done, that's what alcohol did for me. And I said, these first nine steps have given me these promises, and the first nine steps are doing for me what alcohol used to do for me. That's why I don't drink today. If I hadn't have found something to give me that sense of ease and comfort, if I hadn't have found something to give me that great exciting feeling, if I hadn't have found something to give me the things alcohol used to give me, I would go right back to it still trying to find it. I know that today. But you see, I don't have to drink because I've got it. And when I realized what, what the first nine steps had given to me, one day I also realized that, that they've never turned against me as alcohol did. I've never been placed in jail because of the first nine steps. 
No lady has ever drugged me through a divorce court because of the first nine steps. I've never vomited. Damn near did a time or two, but never really vomited because of the first nine steps. You know, if you read those first nine steps, I mean, do those first nine steps and read those promises. And if you receive those promises in your life, then you have become an entirely different human being. The big book tells us in the appendix on spiritual experience, spiritual awakening, that a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening is a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. We come in here restless, irritable, and discontented. We come in here filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. We come in here filled with resentment and anger and etc. And if we've changed from that to the state of mind that the promises give, then we've had a tremendous change in our personality. Probably enough to recover from alcoholism at the end of the first nine steps if we receive the promises. Now if that's true, then what's the purpose of the last three steps? A lot of people in AA will tell us that the last three steps are there to maintain our sobriety. And I will agree that they will certainly help us stay sober. But the word maintain or maintenance is a misnomer within itself. To maintain something means to keep it as is. And there's another natural law that applies that says, nothing in our universe ever stays as is. Everything in our universe is in a constant state of change. It's either growing or it's dying. It's progressing or it's regressing. My God, you look at a beautiful tree and it grows and it grows and it grows and it gets more beautiful every day until one day it quits growing and the day it quits growing it begins to die and eventually reverts back to what it, where it came from. The human body is one of the most miraculous things God's ever made. And we grow and we grow and we grow until we get to be about 19 years old. Then we quit growing. And the day we quit growing, we begin to die and eventually we revert back to where we came from too. Nothing ever stays the same. Bill Wilson twice in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous has mentioned a fourth dimension of existence. One that they never dreamed of. He talks about it in his story. He talks about it in chapter 2. I believe today there is a dimension of living far, far beyond the normal three. And I believe the last three steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are growth steps that are designed to put us in an entirely new dimension of living. Because you see, if, if they were not growth steps, and if we stopped here and had to maintain, then you and I would get bored with this thing. But since the last three steps are growth steps, there's no end to them. We've made a tremendous amount of spiritual growth through the first nine steps if we received the promises. But if we try to stop there, we start slipping back, and we start having trouble with people, then with ourselves, then with God, and then we're drunk all over again. If you look at step 10 in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, some people, they, 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 they read the steps off the wall, and they try to work the steps off the wall. And the only problem with that, the instructions on how to work them are in the book. They're not on the wall. And they read step 10 off the wall, and it says, continue to take personal inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And it looks like that's all we got to do in step 10 to see if we're wrong. If so, admit it. And somewhere we got the idea, you don't do that till you go to bed at night. Well, at my age, I don't get in trouble in bed anymore. I need a walking around step. The one when I'm up and around in the daytime. If I read 10 the way the book says, it says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That's step four. 
It says when these crop up, we ask God to remove them. That's six and seven. It said we discuss them with someone immediately, and that's five. And then it says we make amends if we've harmed anybody, and that's eight and nine. Step ten, done the way the book says to do it, is a continual working of four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Those are the steps that gave us the spiritual growth to start with. I would defy anybody in this room to work step ten the way the big book says to do it and stay the way you are. You absolutely cannot do that. As you continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, you learn more about yourself. As you discuss it with another human being, you learn more about yourself. As you ask God to take those away, they become less and less. As you make amends quickly, your relationship with the world and the people in it becomes better and better and better. Step 10 is a definite growth step. Step 11 says, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve, not maintain, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand Him. For people like us, when we get here, we're spiritually bankrupt. Most of us don't know anything about prayer and meditation. When I got here, I knew nothing whatsoever about meditation. And I, if I thought about it at all, I thought about chanting certain words or laying down and listening to soft music and etc. knew very little about prayer being raised in church. I had two prayers I used when I got to AA. One said, now I lay me down to sleep or pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I, I don't, I'm not into that anymore. That's dealing with death and I don't care about that. The other one I used, and I'm sure you used it too, went like this. God, if you'll get me out of this damn mess, I swear I'll never do this again. Now I'm going to have to develop a life of prayer and meditation. Thank God for the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. On two and a half pages in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, it has given me some very definite and valuable suggestions. And if I will follow them, I will develop my own life of prayer and meditation. Tells me what to do when I get up in the morning. Tells me what to do during the day when I face indecision. Tells me what to do when I go to bed at night. Tells me how to pray. And if I follow those suggestions, I develop my own life of prayer and meditation, and I improve my conscious contact with God as I understand Him. You can't work step 11 the way the book says and stay the way you are. Step 12 is probably the greatest growth step of all of them. First part of step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. I think that's the greatest promise to be found in the big book. It tells me that if I will apply these first 11 steps in my life to the best of my ability, I am assured that I will have a spiritual awakening. Now, what is the spiritual awakening? Well, it's a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. Bill tells us in the 12 and 12, there's many kinds of spiritual awakenings. There are people in AA, but they've all got certain things in common. That is that we're able to feel, believe, and do things we could never do before. Oh, you bet you I feel things I've never felt before. I feel love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill toward my fellow man. I've never felt that before. Before AA, I could have cared less about you. You could have some, but I got mine first always. I don't feel that way anymore. I believe things I've never believed before. I believe God is a kind and a loving God. I believe He stands ready to help any human being anywhere in the world the instant they're ready to give up on self-will and turn back to Him. I believe He's a God of mercy, not a God of justice. Thank God He isn't a God of justice. If He was, I wouldn't be here tonight. Some of you guys wouldn't be here tonight either. Surely, surely, He's pure love. Pure, pure love. I can do things that I've never been able to do before. By golly, I can stay sober. I never could do that before. You know, one of the things that's happened to me recently within the last year or two, I always like to talk about it just for a moment, 
is back when when I was a kid in the 30s. Now this has been a long time ago. I read something about the uh, the English and the French would one day dig a, a a tunnel under the channel where they could move back and forth on solid ground. And I remember saying that I probably was eight years old. I remember saying if they ever dig that thing, I'm going to go through it. Now two years ago, my friend from Little Rock, Joe, and I, uh, we had the great opportunity to go to to England and uh, and Ireland and and do a little stuff on the big book. And I called Joe and I said, Joe, if we're going to go to London, I want to go through that that channel they built over there. Would you like to go? And Joe said, No. He said, I don't know about that. He can't swim. He said, I don't know about that. I said, well, tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll ask God and see what God thinks, and then we'll decide. Next time I talked to him, I, he said, did you talk to God? And I said, yeah. And he said, what did he say? And I said, he said it'd be all right. We could go. <laughs> and we went to London, and, and we got tickets for the channel. And we got on that channel train in Waterloo Station in London. And from London to the channel, they haven't completely rebuilt the track yet in, in England. Top speed was about 90 miles an hour. We got to the channel and we went down into the channel and about 15 minutes later came up on the, on the French side. And there the track has been completely rebuilt and they begin to fire this thing up. And, and I know it was going real fast. And I happened to look out the window and, was, and we were going by an airport. And there was a 737 landing over here, and I know I know that they landed 150 to 160 miles an hour, and we were running off leaving that sucker. Damnedest ride I ever had. And we got to we got to Paris, and and we spent we knew a guy in Paris, and we spent that night, that afternoon, that night, and the next morning sightseeing in Paris, and and got on the Channel train and come back to London. I never could have done that before. I couldn't do that drinking. You know, I've been allowed to do so many, many things that all I've ever done in my life is dream of them. I've been allowed to do so many things in the last few years that I can sit here and stand here and talk about them all night long. Things that things that, that I shouldn't be able to do. Things that I have no right to do. But things that God has done for me that I could not do for myself. The final thing I have to do, and then I'm going to be through, the final thing I have to do is try to practice these principles in all my affairs. And what are these principles? I hear people arguing about them all the time. They say, well, the principle of one is this and the principle of two is that. No, I don't think that's it. Uh, Bill, in his writings, all of them, he doesn't like to repeat himself twice in a row. When he wants to repeat himself, he'll normally find a different word that means the same thing. In step 12, he had already used the word steps when he said having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. And he didn't want to say steps again, so he changed it to principles. And how it works, it says, no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. The principle we set down are guides to progress. What did he set down just before that? The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the front of the 12 as well, he says the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are a set of principles, spiritual in nature. So he's referring to the steps in step 12. Now it's easy for me to work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. NAA. I love you and I hope you love me. And we're going to do our best not to hurt each other. But what do I do outside of AA? I'm only here an hour or two a day at the most. What do I do the other 22, 23 hours? Do I practice these principles, these steps in my home with my spouse? You know, can I really, really see how I am powerless over that lady? Can I realize the insanity of trying to control her to the full? Well, I can't. 
Can I make a decision to turn her will and her life over the care of God as I understand him? Can I inventory me and find those character defects that keep me trying to control? Can I talk about that to another human being? Can I become willing to have God take those away? Can I make amends to her quickly when I've harmed her? There's times I'm ashamed of me. There's times I treat absolute strangers on the street with more courtesy than I treat my own wife in my own home. Just think, if I could practice these steps there with her and she with me, why, we might pick up 10, 12, 14 hours a day where we could be peaceful, happy, and free. If we don't practice them, we don't stand a chance. We're at each other's throat continually. Could I practice some of my children? If I could, what little time I've got left with them is good times. Otherwise, I control, they resist, no good times at all. We might pick up another hour or two a day that way. How about on the job? Could I do it with my co-worker? If I could do it there, maybe I could be peaceful, happy, and free there too. You know, aren't we really saying to ourselves that we can be just about as peaceful and happy and free as we want to be? My old sponsor used to say, Charlie, you can be just as happy as you want to be. And I'd say, you old fart, you have no idea what you're talking about. Today I hear, people, I hear myself saying to people, you can be just as happy as you want to be. you got the tools to do it with. Now make no mistake about this. God's not going to do this for you. Other people are not going to do this for you. But you, with God's help and the help of other people, can do it for yourself. I think we're the luckiest people in the world. You know, they tell me today that the majority of the alcoholics, probably 97 out of 100, are going to die from alcoholism, not even knowing they're alcoholic. Now, if that's true, then 3% of us have stumbled into AA. And only about one out of three that comes to AA are recovering. See, we're talking about one out of a hundred. I used to say, God, why, why, why am I an alcoholic? Today I say, God, why am I not one of those dying from alcoholism? My friend Floyd that took me to my first AA meeting took me to the hospital. He's never been able to stay sober. Today Floyd's a wet brain. He's a hopeless cripple. He's confined to a nursing home. And if I go see him, the only thing he can say to me is, Charlie, do you remember when I took you to your first AA meeting? And it's all lost from then on. Why me and why not him? I'm convinced today that God got tired of seeing people like us die from alcoholism. I'm convinced today that he took Bill and Bob and the first 100 and Dr. Ewing and Dr. Silkworth and Roland Hazard and the whole bunch and put it together so we could have it today. If he picked people then, and he's always worked through people, if he picked people then, then surely he's still picking people today. There's not an alcoholic in this room that ought to be here. Every one of us ought to be dead. God's got a job for us to do. And if we work our program and we have our spiritual awakening, then we can help others have that spiritual awakening. That's going from bridge to shore. You know, we can't take anybody from bridge to shore. But we can take them from this shore over here where they're sick and they're restless and they're irritable and they're discontented and filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. And we can sponsor because we know more about alcoholism than anybody alive. We know more about recovery than anybody alive. And we can walk with them as they walk the bridge. And then they can reach the shore also. I think we're the luckiest people in the world. Thank you all for letting Barbara and I be here.